The message you are about to hear was also given in high definition, which you can watch on video in high definition on loverealized.com. Welcome to you all. This is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. It has been a long time since I have given a message in high definition video. I've given many messages in the iPod broadcasts in audio, but it's been a year and a little over two months since I've given a message by video. And since that time, I did have one time when I was on my knees in prayer where God clearly spoke to me and he said he has called me to preach his word. So I had a clear, clear speaking of the Lord on that. And I am believing that in this message that I'm about to preach, that the Holy Spirit will come into this message and touch your life. This is a message to the body of Christ around the world. It is a message to all of those that are hungry and thirsty to have a deep and a real, satisfying relationship with God. I am praying that as I speak this message, that the Holy Spirit will be released to speak through me out of the Spirit of God, what he would be saying to you as an individual and to the body of Christ for this time. I'm doing this message a lot differently even than the last broadcasts I've done on just straight audio, which you can find on my site at loverealize.com. I always seek for God to lead me in this word, often through the casting of lots. And that does work if one is sincere and reverent and they're living in a right relationship with God, otherwise it doesn't work. But that's not the only way God leads people, obviously, in the Word of God. But this time, I was led by the casting of Lot to Luke 8. But I didn't just do the first, let's say, 10 verses. I felt the Lord prompting me to continue because I only spent a half hour each day in this particular aspect of labor in the Word of God. The other hour I had spent writing a number of books that will be coming out in the near future. So I felt that I was to continue through the whole chapter and to meditate on each passage and make notes. This is being divided up into sections of a half hour. And so it took a, in this particular passage, a lot longer than probably normal. Um, I don't remember the exact dates, but right up until yesterday, from probably for almost two weeks, I've been meditating and making notes on this passage of scripture. And I want to share what God has been speaking to me about from this passage, and what I believe he is speaking to the body of Christ about from this passage of scripture. All I have is what I wrote. It's not really uh, an outline, but I just want to speak from Luke chapter eight. And so I will begin by reading this chapter. And it may be that because this is quite long, there is a lot in this chapter 
that I will just do an overview of the chapter in this video message and continue on with audio messages in more detail on the different sections of this chapter. And then I will be led again to another place in the scripture and begin to share from there. But I am here to seek to minister, as the Word of God says in 1 Peter. It says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And I will speak this day, seeking to allow the Spirit of God to speak through me. And I believe that God will touch people with his Spirit, even in healing virtue, that their hearts will be healed, because this passage is about the heart. In fact, I found that as I went through this passage, it all dovetailed all the different events in this passage and parables. And this passage dovetailed in to this theme. The healing of the wounded heart. Not just the wounded heart, but the issue is the healing of the heart and the transformation of the heart. I'm going to begin reading this chapter in the King James Version. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. And Jonah the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. And when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the falls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other fell on good ground, and sprang up and bare fruit an hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, what might this parable be? And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts lest they should believe and be saved. And they on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. That which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and pleasures and riches of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. Turn something on here. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, 
or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. Then came to him his mother and his brethren, and could not come at him for the press. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples, and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep, and there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased. And there was a call. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, and neither abode in any house but in the tombs. And he saw Jesus. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for oftentimes it caught him. And he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he brake the bands, and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there was there unheard of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them, and he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. When they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what was done, and came to Jesus, and found the man, out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also which saw it told them by what means he that was possessed of the devils was healed. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. And he went up into the ship and returned back again. Now the man of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house, and show how great things God had done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city 
how great things Jesus had done unto him. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house, for he had one only daughter, about twelve years of age. And she lay a-dying, but as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon, her upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood staunched. Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied Peter, and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee, and sayest thou who touched me? Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. While he had spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, she shall be made whole. <coughs> and when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden, and all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she's not dead. But sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all out, and took her by the hand, and called, saying, May arise. And her spirit came again, and she rose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. So I'm just uh, scrolling back to the beginning of this passage. Scripture. Oh my, is it long. <laughs> and before I start, I just uh, need a drink of water here. Father in heaven, I just thank you for what you will do in this time. I ask that your word would prevail. And have free course that would prevail in me and go forth and bear fruit in your name, Jesus. I ask it. Amen. In the first part of this passage of Scripture, we have the scene of Jesus with the twelve disciples. He went throughout the city, village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Good news. And what I'm sharing with you today is good news. You have no reason to make choices in your life that will take you in a direction that is destructive and tormenting and increases and ends up in an eternity of torment 
you can choose to have more abundant life, not only in this world, but far much more is it important in the world to come. And I want to share the glad tidings. And the first thing we see is that there was women that ministered to Jesus Christ. They were the ones that had the privilege to be the closest to them. They were women who had wounded hearts. This is evident because it says in verse 2 that these women were healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Notice that this is not saying that evil spirits were cast out, though they were. But it is saying they were healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And the reason that word healed is there is because there was wounds in their lives. Maybe they experienced some trauma when they were children being raped or terrible rejection when they were children or at some time in their life. But they have their hearts wounded. And the result of a wound in the heart is that there is a fear that is instilled in the heart for this, whatever it is that happened, to come forth in different other ways and then to experience even worse things. There's a fear of rejection. For example, when there is a fear like that, and it is allowed to be fed by the memories that are continually coming up of what happened, it is easy to feed that wound. And then that gives the advantage to evil spirits to have ground. Because when a wound like that is fed, there is distortions in the soul to perceive things that are not true, but that one believes are true. And that is fed by the whispering lies and suggestive thoughts of the evil one. And then that gives seed and fodder and ground for the enemy to come in with spirits that attach to that person's life and augment those fears and feed upon them so that there's greater and greater psychological and soulish distortion coming from the wound that is in their heart that has not been healed. Maybe it has caused not only fear, but unforgiveness. And so a person's heart becomes attached with things like being easily offended or believing that people are rejecting them because they're saying something that they perceive they're saying against them when in fact the person may be just filled with love towards them and be saying something that they felt would be helpful to them. Maybe even saying it in a right spirit. But when there's that distortion there, there is the attachment of the spirits of offense. And yes, there can even be the possession in the soul of these spirits as one feeds these things. And this was the case with Mary Magdalene, out of whom Christ cast out seven spirits, seven evil spirits, or seven devils, it says here, 
interesting. It says devils there, and the other part it says spirits, but basically it's saying the same thing. So, when the heart is wounded, there needs to be healing of that heart and healing from those evil spirits. The reason it says the healing, healed of evil spirit, is because the Lord ministered in such a way to those women with love to affirm them, even when maybe he said many hard things. As you know, Christ said many hard things to the disciples. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things of God. But when there's a deep, festering wound that feeds the fear of rejection, that feeds the lying spirits of offense, one is easily offended. But the Word of God says, They that love thy law, nothing shall offend them. And what does it mean to love the law? It means to love the Word of God. And what is the Word of God? It is the very expression of who God is to man. In fact, Jesus Christ is the Word of God incarnated in this time and space realm. In fact, the Word of God makes it clear in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. In fact, the word Son means expression. So Jesus Christ, it is the revelation of who God is in the perfection of his being of love, which is in this time and space realm through Jesus Christ the one and only full expression of the one true God, Elohim, the Father that is beyond time and space and sees the end from the beginning, the Son which is the full expression of the Father into time and space, and the Holy Spirit filling all space and all existence and attached to every particle of existence with his creative power and intelligence that can raise the dead or do anything at any ordained time that he so chooses. And so I share this because I want to impress upon you that here is Christ. And he sees these women in this state where they are in torment. They're being tormented by evil spirits that are lying to them and saying all kinds of things to cause them to continue to have offense, to continue to hold unto unforgiveness. And he comes to them. And he speaks the truth, but he affirms them strongly with this. Even though they may be misunderstanding him, he affirms to them his love for them that is tempered with truth. Now the word of God, we know, is as a sharp two-edged sword, it says in Hebrews 4.12, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And those two edges are one, and I'm not going to get into this here in depth, but I'm going to just say this much. One is the integrity of God's love that requires judgment against all that is contrary to love. That is the holiness of God. His love is so pure that it is a blazing fire of judgment against this, the slightest word, thought, or deed that is contrary to God's love. God will not tolerate sin. But his love is so great because of that foundation of the holiness of God that from it springs forth the mercy of God, revealed in God's love being so great 
that he suffered more than you, a mere creature, and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, so that you could receive his forgiveness. And I believe that when Christ ministered to these women, he spoke the truth to them, and they probably misunderstood and were and felt the hurt of some of the things he said. But they also saw how great his mercy and his love was to them. And he healed the wounds in their heart because he did not allow their reactions and their distortions to affect him. But he overcome that with love. that covered all of their distorted responses out of the wounded heart that feels they're being rejected or feels this or that. And he brought them to the place of understanding the forgiveness of God. And then he went and he confronted those evil spirits and he told them, you repent of these things. Our God will heal you. And he cast out those evil spirits, those devils, those seven devils of Mary, with authority and with power that had embraced her with these lies. He exposed the lies that she was believing from those evil spirits. And so their hearts were healed. And when their hearts were healed, they were also healed of infirmities. When their hearts were healed, they were healed of the evil spirits. They had no ground to return because now their heart was filled with a passion and a love for God and recognized the greatness of his mercy to forgive them and to cleanse them of all the things in their lives that had held them in captivity, the forgiveness was there in their hearts. And so these women were the ones that had the privilege to be the closest to Jesus Christ. It is often the ones that are the closest to the Lord are the ones that have been forgiven the most. We know the parable of the woman that came to the feet of Christ and wiped his feet with the tears of her hair in appreciation that she had been forgiven because she was about to be stoned, probably the one that was about to be stoned, and accused of adultery. And she wiped his feet with the tears of her hair and anointed his feet. She knew what it was to receive such great mercy. She recognized the greatness of God's mercy because she'd experienced the severity of judgment that just about took her life. Many people, and again, I can't go into this in detail, have a distortion of Elohim, the Almighty's one, the one true God, that's I am that I am, I'm saying in Hebrew, that is fully expressed in Jesus Christ to us, the one and only full expression of the Father. They have a distortion. And this distortion is often because they have been wounded in their heart. They have begun to develop a perception of God in their heart that is like the perception of God that Cain experienced. What happens is things happen in our lives, and we wonder why God is allowing them. And we begin to think, well, if God could allow this, 
and then we think. We become offended at the things that God has allowed. We've lost sight of who God is, that he is ultimately good because of the consequences of the things that happen in our own lives, because of our own wrong choices, because of the choices of others who have made wrong choices that have affected our lives. And we become offended at these consequences. But where are the root of all of these consequences of suffering and death? It is because of rebellion against God. It is because of sin. We become offended at the integrity of this God's love, the purity of God's love that requires judgment against all that is contrary to love, which is why this world is in the, the state that it is in. And so we focus on all of the things that are negative, that are dark, that have come into our lives, that have come into the lives of others, that we observe in the world, and we get caught up in our own Minuscule understanding when the Word of God says that His ways are as higher than our ways as the heavens are above the earth and commands us not to lean unto our own understanding, but with our heart and all our ways to acknowledge Him. What do we acknowledge? We acknowledge the holiness of God is unquestionable, no matter what is allowed in our lives. It is unquestionable. We have the case of Job, and we know that the whole issue in the life of Job was that the devil wanted him to curse God. And he always said, and he said to God, we'll see if Job fears you after this and this happens. So there is the area of the demonic, too, that contests the righteous. It says in the word of God, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivered him, them, him from them all. So it shouldn't surprise us, just because we're living a righteous and holy life, that there won't be times in our life where we will be tested and tried in order to be purified and brought into conformity to the image of God. For that is God's purpose, is that we would be brought into conformity to having a being that is totally whole. But when we become offended at the things that happen, like Cain, we begin to withdraw in our heart from God, maybe not even consciously, and we begin to perceive God more like an enigma, a mystery, and a dictator, a God that requires holiness and power, but we've lost sight of why there is holiness. Why is God holy? It is holiness. It is the integrity of his love that means there's no corruption in God. Corruption is a destructive principle. Basically, in science, there is this same principle observed in the natural realm in the whole universe. It is the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says that anything that's left on its own will always go in a direction of greater and greater disorder to complete destruction. And when we are cut off from God because we rebel against God, there is an emptiness left in our lives, and we've lost sight of who God is. And that emptiness is like a black hole in outer space that we keep trying to fill and that was only created to be filled with the Spirit of God because God is ultimate reality and it's only that ultimate reality who God is that can satisfy us. It's only this solid rock 
that can satisfy us. That's the rock of reality. The I am that I am. But when we lose sight of God, we develop an idolatrous view of God and we see him as a dictator. And we have lost sight of the fact that God is good. And yet it is the holiness of God that, what is, that guards against corruption. And the holiness of God, therefore, contains wholeness. It is in the holiness of God that we find that which satisfies. It is wholeness. The Word of God says that He desires us to come to the place where we are perfect and complete, desiring and or craving or grasping for nothing, finding our satisfaction in God in all circumstances, not needing to grasp for this or grasp for that, but to rest in complete trust in who God is. So, God brings holiness when we do not rebel against His holiness, but acknowledge our rebellion. Acknowledge that we don't need to understand it and submit to God by repenting of the attitudes that have come to the surface in our heart, of the wounds, of the hurts. Because you see, when you recognize the holiness of God, that it contains wholeness, and out of wholeness comes beauty. God is the very source of ultimate beauty. All the distortions in this world that have distorted his beauty are not from God. For the Word of God says that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. It says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow of turning or variableness. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. But we lose sight of that when our heart is wounded, and we feed those wounds. And we begin to develop a view of God like Cain. And I'll just briefly mention that there's a renowned archaeologist, David Rowell, and he's not even a Christian, who is, and you can go to a site like Red Moon Rising, and there's information there and probably in other places. Uh, and he discusses the evidence for the city of Cain, the first city after the flood, Urudu, which there's all the archaeological, you know, stuff going on with it and all the stuff they discovered in the writings and so on. And he basically shows how they found that even though this was after the flood, the first city after the flood, they probably knew where it was from the geographical markings that could be still detected after the flood. So they found this city after the flood and they, there's evidence that they recognized that this was the city of Cain before the flood, because the city of Cain before the flood was where idolatry started, because they developed a distorted view of God. It was more like a dictator that was controlling, and they lost sight of the goodness of God. And then we find that from that city of Rudu, you have the Ur of Chaldees that developed through Nimrod and was built. That's another big thing. You can read all about it. But basically, they developed Worship to the moon god. That's where Abraham came out of that idolatrous city of Ur of Chaldees. And they worshiped this moon god. And you can trace the worship of the moon god to the Babylonians, from the Babylonians to the Arabs, where they had that rock, where they kept on going around those many gods. I forget exactly how many they were, 120 or something. 
and they called the chief god there Allah, which meant the god, and it referred to the moon god. And then later on, Mohammed came along, and he uh, made that the main god and renounced all of the idolatry that he claimed to renounce the moon god and so on. But they still go around that rock today that was mainly, chiefly, to the moon god. And they have the symbol of the moon. And so you see, you can have a god that is a total idolatrous view of God. Where all he is is demanding submission and there's no understanding of his mercy that he would have such love that he himself would take judgment upon himself for you and me as he did in humbling himself more than you a mere creature and suffering more than you a mere creature so that you could be reconciled to God. And this was known, it says in Revelations 18, before the foundation of the world, that Jesus Christ was slain before the world was created. It was in the very being of God, this ultimate perfection of love that is so great that it can be transcended in such a perfection of love to assure to that which he creates destiny if they will repent and be reconciled to God. And even throughout the whole Old Testament, they knew that God was the source of forgiveness, that only God could forgive. And it is because within his being is this ultimate perfection that from the foundation of the perfection of holiness is ultimately expressed in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross so that you could repent and be reconciled to God. This love is so great. And I know I'm not going to get through anywhere near all of this passage of Luke, but I am pointing out in this passage here right now that God is able to heal the distortion in your heart that is an idolatrous view of God that has happened because of the distortions of people in your past generations that have come to believe things like Cain that are a distorted view of God. On the one hand, you have a distorted image of God as a God that is without goodness, without love, not able to assure forgiveness. On the other hand, you have a God which is a distorted view of God where God has no integrity in his love, where he embraces all sin and there's no real repentance. He embraces all beliefs and there's no real repentance. And so you then have a God that is filled with corruption and not the true God. So these are the two different distortions and belief systems that have issued from the time of Cain in various beliefs that have held people captive from coming into an intimate relationship with God. Now as we continue to read in this passage of scripture, we come to the conditions of the heart in verses 26 to 39, but also in verses 4, 5, and 12. I'm just going to uh, go into this now. So it says that a sower went out to sow the seed. This is in verse 5. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down and the fowls of the air devoured it. And I'm trying a new system here. I'll see if this 
works here for finding the scriptures, but uh, we'll just see. Um, I think it's better just with my notes. Um, yeah. And we continue, and I want to just, first of all, just uh, read this verse again. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the folds of the air devoured it. And then in verse 12, those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. And of course we know, we've read this here, that there's four conditions of heart here that are described. But only one of them endures unto life everlasting. If the other conditions continue, it leads in a di direction that is away from eternal life. The first condition speaks of those more exposed to the world and its demonic influences, which are those by the wayside that allow the word of God to be taken out of their heart by these influences on their heart. This was the case with the Gadarenes that we read about in verses 26 to 39. That's what's in verses 26 to 39. It's about the Gadarenes. And you will notice that they didn't want Christ after that happened, where the they saw the demons leave that man and go into the pigs and all their pigs destroyed. Now, I'm not going to get into that right now. But that is an example of the first condition of the heart. It is fear. Fear of the demonic and fear of losing one's comfortable lifestyle and such like things. And then we have those that receive the word with joy, and it says in Luke 8, verse 6, And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. In verse 13, it, Christ explains it further, and he says, They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation, fall away. Those that receive the word with joy and have no moisture, and I'm going to try using this thing here just to see how it works, but uh, just wait a minute here. Something new. Those that receive the word with joy but have no moisture and are on a rock and thus wither away are those whose hearts are shallow because they lack the fear of God or the recognition of the reality of the truth which includes who God is. It is more a mere intellectual response with very little reciprocation of the greatness of God's mercy to them in view of the holiness of God and required judgment. Thus when temptation and trials come, the roots of their soul grows more in identity with the temporal things of the world than in God. The lack of moisture in verse 13 speaks of being in the place of hardness and shallowness where you cannot draw 
on the presence of God. I don't think I really need this thing that I was using here, but so I learned that. They have no root in themselves. It is the lack of the fear of God. And what is the lack of the fear of God? It is the failure to recognize God for who he really is. And that failure is because we choose in our heart to set up an idolatrous perception of God that is not who God really is, to justify our own ways. The lack of root is because the soul could not come into a place where the root of the person's soul enters into a strong identity in God. It's because people choose to perceive God merely in an intellectual way and very little with the heart. The fear of God is something of the heart. It is a heart response. It is a choice to recognize that God is holy that he requires judgment, that his love has integrity, that it requires that it judge that which is contrary to law. That is why God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire of love, of passionate love. He is a jealous God. And it's only as we recognize how great his love is that he requires judgment, that we can possibly recognize the greatness of his mercy to us. That's why it is so important to choose to fear God. It is why in Revelations chapter 14, in the last days, there's an angel that goes forth preaching the everlasting gospel. And what does it say there? It says, then the angel said, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him that made heaven and earth. And the only way we can truly enter into genuine worship, which is what brings relationship with God, is by choosing to recognize God, that is to fear God, to recognize the only way God could be possibly ultimately trustworthy. There is nothing that could be greater than what I describe as the ultimate quality of the universe, reality of the universe, and governance and government of the universe. It is the one true God, Elohim. As the Father, He's the originator who also sees the end from the beginning. He is beyond the time and space realm. 
As the sun, he functions in governance in the time and space realm. The full expression of the Father, of the very being of God, is in Jesus Christ, in this time and space realm that we relate in our prayers unto the Father. And then the Holy Spirit, which is God and omnipresent in the Son and in the Father, in the third personage. If God was anything less, he would not be almighty. For he, if he wasn't able to be in personage and omnipresence as the Holy Spirit, he would be less than almighty. And the same, if he could not be in personage beyond time and space, seeing the end from the beginning as the Father, and also in personage in time and space as the Son. But what is even more greater is that his love is so great that it will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to love. And that it is so great in this perfection, that it is ultimate in its perfection, and that from that foundation of holiness could spring forth a God who, before the world was created, had the reality of his Son already as an atoning sacrifice for you. For it was the very quality of his being. God is a spirit, is the very quality of his spirit in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. That there would be such a love, it would be so great that it was already a reality, that he was, as it were, already crucified, already conquered death, already lived a perfect life and became a perfect Toning sacrifice. Beyond the time and space realm, it was already there. It was already a reality. It was part, it was the very perfection of who, who the being of God is, that he would have that within him. So Jesus Christ was crucified and rose again before the world was created. And in this time and space realm, it happened in reality. So that you could be reconciled to God. And so when we choose to fear God, we're making a choice to recognize how beautiful the holiness of God is, but how absolutely terrifying and awesome the holiness of God is that requires judgment. But in that recognition, we can recognize that God is good because he will not tolerate corruption. Therefore, he holds total wholeness, total goodness. And if we recognize God is good, what does that lead to? It leads to us recognizing that he's so good that he's able to forgive. And that the only way he could possibly forgive is by living a perfect life in a human body without sin. Though being tempted like us, so that as it were, he took the first man, Adam, and through his obedience, carried him all the way in his obedience, and nailed him on the cross so that we could be translated into Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Those that have a shallow heart are those that will rejoice over hearing messages like even the very one I am preaching. But it all is in their head mostly and hardly touches their heart. That's why the Word of God says 
rend your heart and not your garment. It is a matter of the circumcision of the heart. It's not something you can manufacture. It doesn't mean necessarily that you will dramatically cry out with a loud voice. But let us remember that in Romans 10, where it says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, that just the next few verses right after that, it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It means calling upon the name, calling upon the reality of who God is. What is the name? The name is the expression of who God is in reality to us. That's what it means in the Hebrew. It's the name for the word Shem. That's what the meaning has. It's very close to the word soul, which means the reality of who you are to yourself. You can look it up in the Bible. But here's the thing. He wants us to know that deep turning of the heart. It involves a choice to recognize how holy God is and how great his mercy is out of recognizing the holiness of God. That recognition of the holiness of God causes us to see our guilt and our undoneness and that we deserve hell and judgment. That we're unworthy. But that because he is so great in his mercy, we can actually repent and receive the cleansing of his blood, the outpoured love of God and pouring out his life in his blood and in his body, suffering so terribly. And I'm not going to go into all the other things about that because I have a lot of teaching on, on the atoning work of Jesus Christ. But if you will receive that in that way, you will not be like the heart that is shallow, that receives the word. You will enter into a deep identity with God. Because when you recognize that, when you recognize, really, the holiness of God, you don't want to be controlled by the manipulated things of this world that are so temporal. And I want to go on here. I can see I'll be preaching for a long time, but I'm going to continue here. The condition of the heart of those that receive the word and allow thorns in their heart to choke its growth, to maturation of fruit, are those who have allowed their heart to give greater priority of time energy and wealth to the cares and riches and pleasures of this world. Again, this is due to the failure to choose to fear God, which means to recognize who God and His kingdom is in ultimate preciousness, value, and beauty. When we do not see the worthiness of the treasure buried in the field, we will not cast away all the things of the world in our life that will stand in the way of purchasing it. You know the parable of the treasure in the, that's in the field. You know that parable that Christ gave. He said, the kingdom of God is like a man that's searching for a treasure. And when he finds it, he sells all he has in order to purchase that treasure buried in the field. And the kingdom of God is like a treasure that's buried in the field. It isn't apparent. It isn't something that's attractive outwardly. It's hidden. But those that come to truly fear God have come to recognize that he is the treasure of our life. Because in him is the very source of holiness, out of which comes the very source of wholeness for us, for this world, for eternity, 
out of which comes a very source of beauty and creativity that will ever enlarge in our lives and in heaven and in God for eternity in greater and greater realms of fulfillment that never end. It says in the word of God that eye has not seen, neither, neither has ear heard, neither has it even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. So in measure we can know by the revelation of the Holy Spirit the things, the very things that are our inheritance forever and ever and ever. In fact, Paul the Apostle said that his desire was that we would know the riches of his, of the glory of God's inheritance, of the inheritance of Elohim, the Almighty's one, in the saints. In those that have entered into a life of holiness. And then we go on, and, I, and, I, and in the following verses we have those whose heart is honest and good are able to receive God's word in their heart so that it fosters and grows. This is because their heart does not have the aforementioned conditions of hardness, nor the counterfeit condition of softness, by denying the integrity of God's love and required judgment that thereby justifies loving and pri prioritizing the things of this world above God. Rather, those with a good and honest heart are those whose heart has chosen to enter into the genuine fear of God, which is a choice to recognize God and His holiness, out of which springs the recognition of the mercy and goodness of God. This brings the secret of abiding in God, because it births honesty and humility and reverence towards God, which breaks the hardness of the heart. With the result that one's heart is open to the light of God, to receive revelation and thus understanding, to abide in knowing God and obey his word. That's in verses 8 and 15 particularly. But one thing I want to point out is what Matthew 13, 23 says. It says, but he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit, and bringeth forth fruit some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The emphasis here is that he that heareth the word and understandeth it, it is an issue as to whether we are able with our heart to hear the word, which also means to be receptive to the word. It involves an honest and good heart. And really, the genuine fear of God brings a person to the place of honesty, to face the reality of their condition before God. It brings them to the place of humility, and, and it it is the humility that happens because you recognize whose presence you're in, the presence of a holy God that requires judgment. A holy God, where those that, re that fail to be reconciled to him are cut off from him and therefore are part of the principle of corruption, the second law of thermodynamics, where things go on a destructive path that ever increases. Anything left on its own goes in that direction. 
That's the law of science. It's an observation of the whole universe. And so there's hell in a person's mind that leads them to hell. And I mean, I could get sidetracked on so many things to answer all the questions. Well, why would God allow hell? I mean, I could go in depth into it, but it's not the place here to do that. The issue is this, is that when God creates free will beings, he didn't create us as robots. And it's only as we're created with our own free will that there's the capacity to love. Well, the very being and nature and the very core of who God is is love. Is he going to deny who he is and create robots that can't love? No, his ultimate purpose is so great that those that are cut off from God would be like the sawdust of a house left over from the building of an ultimate purpose of a house to inhabit. It is insignificant. It was because of their own free choice. And that's not going to be something that's going to be allowed to negate ultimate purpose and fulfillment and meaning, which is a relationship with God. Hell is a reality. Many people have died and seen hell. There are many accounts of people that have died and even seen pastors in hell because they've held unforgiveness towards people. I mean, how can we hold unforgiveness towards people and think that God's going to be merciful to us. And we obviously, if that's the case, have not seen how great God's mercy is to us. Or would be within the grace of God. And we recognize how great His mercy is to us. To show the same mercy to those that have sinned against us. By choosing to initiate forgiveness towards them. And if they recant the word of God says, forgive them. But we initiate the forgiveness like Christ did on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, which allows them to be able to respond in the repentance. So we choose to go to them and say, listen, I choose to genuinely from my heart forgive you. And if that brings repentance, then they can receive that forgiveness. Now, I'm not here to get sidetracked on these things. What I'm wanting to point out here is that the emphasis here is on understanding. Now the word understanding means basically to put together or to comprehend. It is comprehension. When there is the hearing, when we begin to be able to hear the Word of God or receive the Word of God, which is receiving the reality of who God is in His holiness and in His love, when we allow that sword to go into our heart and circumcise our heart, as painful as that is, what happens when a person is first saved is there is that circumcision. Where we cry out truly from our heart and we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we cry with all our heart and we mean it. Because we've seen our undoneness in the light of and we know that God will forgive us. Because we've seen in the holiness of God his goodness and thus recognized out of that his mercy. And even in the Old Testament before Christ died, it was their recognition. It was the right fear of God that gave them the recognition of the goodness of God that pointed towards the, the atoning work of 
God. And I just want to point out to you that in Ephesians it says, having the understand, this is Ephesians 4.18, it says, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. What blinds the heart, what stops understanding and comprehension of who God is, which means also not being able to understand the ways of God and put the things of God together so they connect and they have meaning and purpose, is the hardness of the heart. The blindness of the heart happens because of the hardness of the heart. Now, we've been talking in this passage, Christ says, he says about these parables, he says, it's not for them to understand. Because he says basically this, they have not responded to the truth I've already given them. They have allowed themselves to just mentally accept it and distort it with their own justifications to live their own life. They have never come to the place where they've chosen to fear me and recognize my holiness and really turn with their heart in a true circumcision that receives that two-edged sword into their heart, that cuts off the enclosement of the heart, which is enclosed by the flesh, by the loves and the things of this world that we tend to grasp onto. You've not allowed that to really enter our heart so that we become dead to those things that can manipulate our lives, the baits of this world that lead to hate and fate. Hate and everlasting fate because of taking the bait of the enemy. It's interesting that after Christ gives this, these parables on the heart, that he speaks, the very next thing he says is this in verse 16. He says, No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. What is the Lord saying? How does this relate to what he just talked about, the four conditions of the heart? The heart that is taken away by the demonic influences of this life. The heart that is shallow and receives it with joy. The heart that is choked by the thorns, and then the honest and the good heart. A candle is created to fulfill its purpose. That's what Christ is trying to point out here, which is to give light in order to give correct direction towards what is constructive, to bring forth, contain, and enlarge light, which holds lasting pleasure and fulfillment. That's the purpose of light. Light gives you direction towards what is constructive to bring forth, contain, and enlarge light which holds lasting pleasure and fulfillment. That's the purpose of a candle. When we take our lives out of our hardened shell of self-worship and put it before the light, which is by the reception of who God is, you see, what causes light in the natural realm is a negative and a positive. And the very essence of who God is, is love. 
this love that has absolute integrity and requires judgment, but is transcended out of that in atoning mercy and forgiveness through his blood and his body broken on the cross. And the negative and positive symbol that we see in math and electricity, and that holds all things together, really, in nature and in the natural realm and probably in every other dimension, really ultimately issues from God's being of love, which can be illustrated in this picture in the natural realm of the negative and the positive. The negative represents the holiness of God that requires cutting off all that is corrupt, that is rebelled against his holiness. Also that negative represents foundation. The foundation of God's integrity of love is holiness from which there can go forth creativity without corruption. It can be an ultimately enlarging forever in greater realms of fulfillment and creativity. That is who God is in the integrity of his love and his holiness. That represents the negative symbol. The positive symbol is formed out of the negative symbol and forms the symbol of the cross, which represents the fact that though you were cut off, now you can be brought back into union with God because his love is so great that he crossed out that judgment when he was nailed on the cross, he crossed it out. It was annulled, and you can receive his forgiveness. When you receive who God is, represented in the negative and positive symbol, the holiness of God and the mercy of God through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who was in the being of God forever from eternity past, it was a reality as if it had already happened. Yes, it was always in God that lay the power of forgiveness, and it was in the fact that his being is the ultimate expression of love, of the perfection of love, which cannot be more ultimately expressed or described than in the holiness of God and in his perfect atoning love and mercy. And so when you have the negative and positive, you have the flow of electricity and you have light. And so it is out of the love of God that emanates light. And from light there comes what I just said, that which gives direction towards what is constructive to bring forth and contain and enlarge light towards ever-enlarging, lasting pleasure and fulfillment in relationship and fellowship with God, through which we have only genuine relationship and fellowship with each other. And ultimately, God's purpose is to have his corporate bride from every background and kindred and tribe and tongue and nation that in the natural would never get along. But because they've known the greatness of God's love and of his mercy, they are all in unity out of that unity they have with the very creator of the universe, Elohim the very life source of all things. When we take our lives out of our heart and shell of self-worship and put it before the light, which is by the reception of who God is in holy love, our candle, which is our soul, is lit 
to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, which is to receive, contain, and enlarge the light and glory of God that causes fruit to come forth and grow to God. I'm watching the time. The fallen self hides from the holy, pure love of God that will not tolerate what is corrupt, and thus contrary to love, and which always chooses the highest, lasting good. God's love always chooses the highest, lasting good. This is because it experiences and grasps for temporal fulfillment in self, which eventually leaves a greater emptiness and thus grasping desperation. This forms a shell of hardness and independence, pride and self-glory from God that insulates one from being receptive to who God is in holy, pure love. Rather, this right perception of God is replaced with a distorted, idolatrous perception of who God is as not having absolutely pure and integrous love to judge what is contrary to genuine love or as not having pure and integrous love but rather distorted and wrong love, but rather what is distorted and wrong by being controlling and demanding a performance void of mercy and thus goodness. This blocks us from receptivity to God so that we cannot hear and do the word of God. Now I know I have a lot more in this passage to share, so I'm going to kind of, just for time, Maybe go a bit faster on things. Then we come to verse 18 in Luke, and it says this, Take heed therefore how ye hear. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given. And whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. So there we have it. Take heed how you hear. When you really are receptive to who God is, and you're trying, you come to the place of honesty, which drives you to the place of humility. You come to the place of humility, which drives you to the place of honesty before God, where you are open to his reproofs and his corrections, not only from him, but through those that you know God has sent into your lives to be used to reprove you as well. You're not offended. When you love who God is in his being, you're not easily offended at what others do. You because you're dead to the world. You found your identity of God. What well, does it matter what people think if you're accepted of God? But if you're not aware of your acceptance and identity in God, then you're alive and worried about what people think. You're worried about being rejected. You're upset that someone has rejected you. And you have these wounds in your heart. And you can feed them. And you can justify them with a distorted image of God in your life. Or you can repent of those idolatrous idols you've set up in your heart. Of offense, of unforgiveness. Of idolatry and covetousness. The Word of God says that covetousness is idolatry. Covetous is basically grasping for things to fulfill your life rather than trusting God and resting in Him to meet your needs. We are to be diligent as to how we hear the Word of God. We must be careful that we hear with a heart that is not hard, 
but is able to absorb the real essence of the words we hear from God. That is the reality of the words we hear from God. When we are truly receptive with a soft heart before God, we can hear, that is, receive the reality of who God is in his perfection of holy, pure love that is behind the words God is communicating towards us. This is because we choose to abide in the genuine fear of God that keeps the heart soft and receptive towards God. Such hearing results in doing the word of God because receiving the reality and revelation of who God is in his ultimate perfection of love is what allows for a genuine heart response of trustfulness in God's perfection of love that could only be ultimately trustworthy. You see, the word of God says that perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. Fear is a grasping to save your life. It, is a, it comes out of a consciousness of loss which is a void in your inner being that is like a grasping black hole in outer space. That's what basically fear is. It's a consciousness of law. It causes up tightness because you're grasping after something you cannot save yourself from or satisfy yourself with. The result is torment. Grasping for acceptance by other people Grasping for some idolatrous thing of this world. The Word of God says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. We can do the pleasure of God's heart. We can do His will. By coming into a relationship of identity in God that causes our identity in the world to be totally God. So that we, were as it, we are, as it were, dead to the buttons that can be pushed. They're not there anymore. There's no buttons to push to manipulate our lives. With pain and hurt, we don't, we don't have motives. We don't care if we're ever seen. We don't seek to be acknowledged by people. We only seek relationship and intimacy with God, and our delight is to be hidden in God and not looked up to by anyone. But please God and be pleasing to Him. Yes. Then we go on. Revelation of what is and has ultimate worth, value, and trust, such as the treasure hid in the field that is worth selling all for results in the understanding of the worth that motivates into action choices to pay the price to embrace the reality of the treasure of ultimate worth. Just going on here, looking at this, making sure I've got the right place. We go on to Luke 8, 19 to 21, and I'm watching the time here. Then came to him his mother and his brethren, and could not come at him for the press, and it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these, which hear the word of God and do it. And so that just emphasizes what I just said. 
the identity that God wants is not in natural relationships. Even the natural relationships of those that are the dearest and closest to us, which could be our wife or could be our family. Those that are born of the Spirit are not born of the will of man, nor of blood. In other words, their identity, they're not brought forth to be motivated by an identity that is in their natural blood relationships, nor in the desire to please man. That's what Christ is saying. They are brought forth so that their lives are not influenced by those things. They are brought forth so that it is the Spirit of God that leads them. And so they do those things that are contrary to the natural realm which most people are influenced and manipulated by. And so it is just as if you're looking at a wind in the tree. They don't understand why they're motivated to go this way and that way. They see they're different, but they don't understand why. But it's because it is the Spirit of God that is indwelling them and motivating them and not the natural realm. They do not abide in the natural realm. They abide in a relationship with God that is transcended over this natural realm. So much so that we can say, who is my mother? And who is my brother? It is those that do the will of God. That is who we have our closest relationships with. It's not those in the natural realm. It is those that we know a reciprocated relationship in the Spirit of God with, through our relationship with Elohim, with Jesus Christ. Ahidya, Sherry Ahidya, the I am that I am. Then we go on. And we have another thing that is important to know about the condition of the heart in Luke 8, 22 to 26. And I want to touch on this too. I don't know how long my video can last, but it's still going. So I'm going to preach as long as it's still got memory on it. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples. And he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth, but as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water, and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased. And there was a calm, and he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commanded even the winds and the water, and they obeyed him. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. The ship crossing to the other side speaks of our pilgrimage of crossing over from the fears and cares of this life into a sure abiding relationship of fellowship with God to enter heaven forever. Like the storm, God allows trials in our life to expose our condition and need of God to be the controlling heart center of our life. There was the dark ages in the history of Israel, and there was the dark ages in the history of the church, and in history itself. And yet out of these dark times came the brightest and most transforming lights in men and women of God. It looked like they were going to sink, so they were in great panic to awaken Christ out of sleep. And his response is, where is your faith? In other words, where is the restful expression of the trust of your soul out of the moral persuasion of who I am? You see, the word faith means is from the word pistis, which means basically moral persuasion. In this case, moral persuasion in who God is. 
morals, persuasion of the heart. They should have been in a restful trust that God would deliver them, but rather were afraid and filled with wonder. It is the fear for self that is the opposite of faith and robs us of the fear of God, which results in knowing the mercy and love of God, which by, by which faith is birthed and responds in greater, greater reciprocation. Many of us, and all of us, go through trials in our life. In fact, the Word of God says, after you have suffered a while, He will strengthen, establish, and settle you, because God's purpose is that you would come to the place of an obedient relationship with Him where you will be perfect and entire, grasping for nothing. Coming to the place where you genuinely fear God is coming to the place where you do not desire anything. They that fear the Lord shall not want any good thing. That's what the Word of God says. The genuine fear of God births a relationship of intimacy with God that finds total completeness out of that love relationship that's birthed out of the recognition of the holiness of God that brings forth the revelation of His mercy and love. Faith works by love. It works, it responds to the revelation of the love of God, and that comes out of the revelation of the greatness of God's mercy, which comes out of the revelation of the holiness of God. And those are the ways we enter into relationship with God. I guess I'll have to, because I believe this will not go on forever recording, really kind of go a little faster on the rest of this. So that's the fear of the heart that is conquered. Now we got Luke 8, 34 to 37. I'm not going to read the passage. We already read it. This is about the man that had the devils, which confronted Christ when they put their boat on the shore there, and the Gadarenes were Greeks that were living in that area, and this man had a devil, and he was living in the tombs. And we know what happened. The Lord cast the devils out of this man, and he was there, clothed, and sitting in his right mind, and the devils went into the swine, the swine ran into the, the deep. And so what did these people do? They feared. They didn't want to receive Christ. They were like the condition of the heart, where the falls came and took the word away. They never even came to the point where they were receptive to Christ because such fear gripped their hearts. What was it a fear? It was a fear that, well, you know, I would put it this way. Maybe I should read it. They had fear that Jesus Christ would cast out more devils and that they might end up becoming possessed of them and their animals so that their lives and living might be destroyed. They concluded they were too evil to attain a right relationship with God, where they could have God's blessing, power, and authority in their lives over these things. They had no hunger or desire to seek out a right relationship with God that could give them such blessing and authority like they saw in Jesus Christ, His disciples, and those that were following Him. Fear for losing temporal tranquility made their heart not even open to receiving the Word of God. They were like the heart that allows the Word of God to be cast by the wayside and be snatched by the demonic influences of this world. They were so worried that they might get possessed of the devil, that they might end up in the same condition. 
they had all of these fears of the demonic, fears of losing material wealth, that that was what their God was. It was the God of fearing these things and ultimately meant they were fearing the devil rather than God. And that is what happens to some people they are not even open to receiving the word of God because such fear grips their heart. But then we see another scene right after this in Luke 8, 40-42, which gives us the answer to conquering the fear in one's heart. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, so here we have the opposite. They're waiting for him. They're looking forward to receiving him as opposed to the Gadarenes. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had one only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay a dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. So here you have a scene of people thronging Christ. The people that gladly receive Jesus Christ are like the sea that does not have any root. While the crowd that received Christ throngs him, a woman touches him in faith and receives wholeness from her infirmity. This is like the many that receive the word with joy, but they have no root and do not endure, to touch and receive the word of Christ that will make them whole. So God wants us as his people to be those that take courage in our circumstances of need like this woman that was in such need that she spent all her living. She was so desperate, but she was willing to take a stand. She was willing to overcome her fear of being rejected by the crowd that could so easily have turned on her because by her going into that crowd, she would defile the crowd because of her issue. Because that was what the Old Testament law said would happen. And, they were not, and therefore they'd have to be all day cleaning themselves, you know, keeping themselves clean and going through all these ceremonies because she came in their midst. But she was willing to risk all of that. And in the midst of a thronging crowd, she overcame her fear of the rejection of that crowd with the desperation she had to be whole. And that is what happens to many people. They find such emptiness in the things of this world but they come to the point where they so loathe all the emptiness and the mistrust that has happened that they don't trust anyone. And they are cornered to a place where they can only, they're longing for what is ultimately trustworthy, what is ultimately meaningful. And then they're willing to pay the price to find that wholeness and to overcome their fears and to touch the hem of his garment. It was her trust and moral persuasion in Yeshua that made her whole. She was willing to risk going into the thronging crowd, and I've mentioned that. This overcame and put to death the fear of rejection and gave no ground to hold her captive any longer to this distortion caused by fear of rejection in her body. You see, it's the fear of rejection 
and many other fears that distort our physical body and cause infirmities and allow demons to be attached in our lives that augment the physical infirmities and augment the soulish and psychological distortions that torment us and feed the infirmity more and more. But we can come to a place such desperation in the midst of a thronging crowd, in the midst of the storm, like the disciples were in the storm, we can come to a place of rest where we're not abiding in the outward circumstances of trial around us. We're delighting in our relationship with God and trusting Him. And we cry out from the depths of our heart to touch, just touch the Lord. And just come to that place where you enter the Holy of Holies and you touch Him and virtue comes out and you are healed and made whole. And then towards the end we have, of course, the uh, account in verses 41 to 42. And behold, there came a man named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house, for he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she lay dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. Right. And then we go on and we know what happens. The woman touches his garment in the midst of this throng. And then this man comes and tells him that his daughter is already dead, don't trouble the master anymore. But the Lord hears it. When someone or something precious is about to be taken, or just has been taken from us, we are commanded to make a choice to not fear them, but to believe. This means instead of absorbing the outward threatening circumstances, we choose to be persuaded in who God is to us, in his goodness and power to answer and bring deliverance and healing. The crowd observes what is and receives it because they allow themselves to be alive and convinced by it rather than in God, who is far greater and in full power to govern over these things. And we know this is the case with Christ going to heal this lady. He comes in there and they laugh at him because he says she's not dead. They just are like the thronging crowd. They're, they're just aware of the outward appearance, the outward circumstances in their own understanding, because they're not abiding in a relationship, if at all, with God. Certainly not a deep relationship. And so the Lord tells them they have to go to the room. And then only the disciples are going to be there, and the mother and the father. Because they're in an environment of total, where they're just in their mind. They're not in, they're just totally abiding in the outward things and responding to those things. They have no consciousness in the midst of this great, trial that this man is going through of their need to be abiding in that place of humility and honesty where we're not thronging God. You know, the Word of God says when you come to the house of God in Ecclesiastes 5, be not hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be free. Few. We need to be still and learn to wait on God, learn to trust in Him in the midst of the storms and the trials until we see His deliverance, 
learn to be giving him thanks in all things. And so I had shared with you what I believe the Lord is wanting to say from his word to the body of Christ. He is calling us to repent of not fearing God. He is calling us to repent of thronging him, of insensitivity to who he is. How many meetings do I go to churches? And they, and I'm not, and it's nothing wrong with these things. These are great. And people are all joy, joy, and jumping around. And that's all good. But here's the thing. There's a total insensitivity many times to entering into a far greater, deeper relationship with God individually and corporately. It is far better to be on our faces. In fact, it says it's better to be in the house of mourning than into the house of mirth. And that sadness makes the heart right. It commands us in the Word of God in the New Testament to be sober. Does that mean that we don't experience joy? No, it means we experience more joy because we're getting real with God. We're humbling ourselves. We're coming into the holiest holies through the fear of God to the place of honesty and humility. So that we have a true deep turning in our hearts that results in a reciprocated relationship with God that then can rise up with great joy and adulation and prof prophecy and creative expressions towards one another in the body of Christ through the gifts of the Spirit. God is calling the church to repent of control and not allowing the body of Christ to come into the place of the fear of God and be his house of prayer. The churches should be open continually for prayer. They should be seeking God. They should be, the meeting should be started on our faces. There should be sensitivity to those around us that are suffering before we start thronging and all jumping around with joy. I'm not saying there's any set pattern. We can start services in songs and in joy. But I would say the general pattern would be coming in humility and reverence and being sensitive to God and one another before we enter in to adulation, so that we are not insensitive to God in our midst, or insensitive to those that are suffering in our midst and need ministry. Out of that springs forth great liberty and great praise. But unfortunately, many of us are lacking, and there's the spirit of control that limits the moving of the Holy Spirit, so that the members of the body cannot go forth in the gifts of the Spirit. I could speak for a long time on this. I'm coming out with three books, an in-depth outline on what God wants in local assemblies around the world so that they do not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting the body and come forth to be his bride for the last days. I'm looking forward to getting that finished. Part of it is a gospel message to the lost as well. And then there's a book on the fear of God, which is a very large book. Pray that I'll get these things done fast and that God will bring in the finances that I need to do his work because I am held back right now with having to do all kinds of things on the internet to make money. And I'm praying that there would be breakthrough their sin so that I can be released and others to do, to reap this end time harvest. God is giving us a time because President Trump is in office. Because God's placed him there so that we can have a season to reap the harvest and to bring forth the bride of Christ around the world, which will conquer our city, our community, our nation. Nothing else will. As long as we're in churches, we're, we're in denominational modes that limit God, and we're not learning to enter into the fear of God, we will not see our own lives or other lives come in to ultimate meaning and destiny as God would have them. 
nor will we see anything but greater and greater judgment if we do not repent. God's allowing his time so that there can be a great harvest before his coming. Let us seize this season of eight years before it's too late. The night comes when no man can work. Thank you for listening to this message.